0: As you can tell, this is Reformation Weekend. I personally love the Sunday, and we as a church love this Sunday. We make much of this day because we make much of God's grace. It really is that simple. On this Sunday, we intentionally celebrate God's grace to us in Christ. Now, I hope you realize what a horrendous and terrible statement I just made. Did you catch it? I just said that on this one Sunday, we intentionally celebrate God's grace to us in Christ. I hope that is not true. It's certainly not intended to be true. I hope that we intentionally celebrate God's grace to us in Christ every Sunday. That's certainly the point of our gathering, and Will and I would be in big trouble if we're not doing that. So what's the big deal about this Sunday? Why do we make so much out of this Sunday? Why do we talk about grace alone, and faith alone, and scripture alone, and Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone? Why do we do that on this date every year? Well, here's what I think is the answer to that question. On this Sunday, we collectively recall the fact that, as human beings, we are people who forget. Can I get an amen? We forget everything. Not only theological matters like justification by faith. We forget to check the weather. We forget our raincoats. We forget our umbrellas on day like today. We forget what date it is. We forget all kind of stuff. And forgetting and the power of remembering is actually a very, very important thing. This is a reality that we see throughout Scripture, just like in the passage Andy read for us in Deuteronomy, that the Lord continually calls us to remember him, to do not forget what he has done, to not forget the way our lives are blessed because of him and no one else, to not forget the hope that we have in him. Do not forget. We see this throughout Scripture, and yet history tells us we forget. We are people who forget. And when we forget, the tendency of mankind has always been when we forget the story of God and his grace in our life, we create a new story and replace his goodness with something else. You see, the Reformation happened some 500 years ago because we had turned the gospel into a different story than the free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So week after week, we come here and the Lord reminds us that he is our king. That he is our Father, that he is our Lord, and ultimately that he, of course, will never forget us. So, on this particular Sunday, on this Reformation Sunday, we recognize that which we must never forget that the glory of Jesus Christ is his free love for us, for sinners like us. So, I wrestled this morning of which text to preach from, what would be a good, quote, Reformation passage. I thought of What might Luther or what might Calvin or one of the others, what what might they have highlighted on this morning? And then I was quickly convicted of what this day is actually all about. All of the Bible celebrates God's grace to us in Christ. There is no Reformation passage as the entire book is a Reformation book. I can't imagine any part of Scripture not being a story of God's grace to us. So this morning I've chosen Ephesians chapter 2 of what I think is perhaps one of the most clear instructions of this, of what we must remember for our joy to remain in Christ and Christ alone, for our joy to rise above whatever story we could ever create for our own lives so that we will, as God's beloved people in Christ, rest in Him. So, from this great passage, from this great epistle, I simply want us to remember two things this morning. First, remember our tragic past. And then, secondly, remember our glorious hope. And I freely admit, and I shared with Andy and Will this morning, I'm leaving so much out of this passage. However, we're going to focus on two things our tragic past. And our glorious hope. And my prayer for us this week has been that God's grace would overwhelm us in such a way that he would produce supernatural joy in our heart as we remember him. Okay, let's look back at verses 1 through 3 if you want to keep your Bibles open. And let's remember our tragic past and the devastating results of sin. In these words here, the Apostle Paul shows us our true spiritual status On this earth, apart from God's grace, apart from the love of our King. And may I suggest that these biblical principles of what is true of humanity without Jesus is the battleground of our culture today, and it's been the battleground of culture of all days going backwards. According to the text, mankind's status with God, apart from Christ, is that we are dead dead. Does everyone see this? We are dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins, dead. And how can that be? Because we are, of course, this morning physically alive. We're mentally alive. We're emotionally alive. And that we can breathe, and that we can think, and that we can make decisions. We can work. We can play. We can invest money. We can be successful. We're alive this morning that we can read, we can study, we can grow stronger. We're alive in that we enjoy the creation that is before us. We're alive in that we can suffer injustices against us. But dead in this biblical sense is that you and I, apart from Christ, cannot commune with God as he designed us to do. We cannot know him and be known by him and have fellowship with him and enjoy him. As Adam and Eve were created in God's likeness, they were designed to delight in him, to delight in his presence, to enjoy him, to laugh with him, to obey him, to serve him as their royal ambassadors, to love the obedience they had with their Lord, to delight in their perfect and strong king, and yet in their willful sin, it destroyed this communion. It destroyed their communion and it destroyed ours. Thus we are born in this sinful state. In this status, we neither have desire for him or love for him. Make no mistake, all people throughout the world and throughout the ages love God's creation in some form, either its beauty or the hope of its pleasures. Yet loving creation apart from the creator Never produces lasting joy because our spiritual death still exists. The spiritual death means, at the very least, that not only can we not go to God in our sinful state without Christ, but it also means that we would not want to. There's nothing there when we are spiritually dead. You know, over the years, uh, Will and I meet with the kids as they come to make their profession of faith. I'm looking out across the room and I recognize many of you that we have talked about this particular issue and sin and what it means. And whenever the subject comes up with our children and how it affects them, how Adam and Eve's sin affects them, one of the most freeing parts I find of all of those conversations with the children is simply when I ask them this question, and that is, when did you become a sinner. And the kids, regardless of their age, they think about it. They think about Adam and Eve. They think about the past. And then it kind of dawns on them, Well, I was born a sinner. I've always been a sinner. And I say, So that means there's never been a day in your life that you did not need the grace of Jesus Christ. And the kids are like, I guess that's true. So that's our status apart from Christ. We're dead. It's the inability to have fellowship with God. And this is horrible. This is tragic. And yet, it's not the end of the bad news. Sorry, we're still in point one before we get to the good news. Notice the activity, though, in these passages. Look at verse 2 of the activity of the dead, if you will. You see, since we are unable to follow our good king because of this dead state of our being, we do follow someone else, the prince of the air, that is Satan, that is all demonic forces. The work of our enemy is being carried out where? In the desires of the body and of the mind. So let this sink into you this morning, and may I suggest that we all be horrified. Do you see what is normal for a person? What is normal for a society? What is normal for a culture? What is normal for an institution apart from God's grace? What is normal? What is normal life as someone who is dead is a trajectory toward evil. That is the reality. And it is horrible and it is tragic and yet, this is what we see all around us day after day, and it has always been true since the collapse in the Garden of Eden. Dead people, people who do not know God, live and act and move and create all from apart from Him. And when they do this, they, we, will attempt to normalize demonic lifestyle. Years ago, Lisa and I were back in my hometown, I think this is even before our kids were born, and there was a, a local girl there who had kind of become a little bit popular in that, that area, and she was doing an outdoor concert, and we decided there might be something fun for us to do, so we went, I saw old friends, that sort of thing, and I, I don't remember much about the concert, but what I remember is the final song that she sang at the concert was Amazing Grace, and I thought, oh, this is kind of neat, She's, let's be a believer. Everybody knew Amazing Grace, and it was obvious that she liked that particular hymn. And, but if you remember the words of Amazing Grace, it states this at the beginning of the hymn. It says, Amazing Grace, oh, how sweet the sound that saved a like me. She replaced that word with Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. And I remember hearing that, I'm like, wait, that, that's not the words. We aren't souls, we're wretches, We are souls, but you know what I mean. And then it dawned on me, who wants to be a wretch? Of course we don't want to be a wretch. We want to tell a different story of ourselves, something that's not that bad. Merzaria Butterfield's new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, she says of today's world, it is in chaos. And the church is divided. Why? Because we fail to obey God and his value for his plan. And she compares this age to the days of the Tower of Babel. Meaning, this has always been the case. This has always been the case. We don't want this doctrine of depravity to be true because it condemns us all. So our desire is to forget it and replace it and tell a different story. Andy Longley and I were together earlier this week, and as you'll see during Sunday school, he loves history, and he basically knows all of European history. But we we were just talking, and and the subject of World War II arose, and uh, I'd forgotten this story, but he brought this up about the rise of uh, uh, the Nazis in Germany. In the 1930s, the British prime minister... Nelson Chamberlain had this amazing quote after he went to Germany and then came back to speak to the British people. He said this, I returned from Germany to bring peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. So British people, go home and get a good night's sleep while Hitler was literally next door waiting to invade. Why did he say that? I think it's obvious that's what he wanted to be true. He wanted peace. He wanted to tell a different story. And don't we all? So let me simply ask you this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe this doctrine of the depravity of mankind? It will never be popular. We will never want it to be true. It will never be popular to believe that apart from Christ, we are dead and we follow the paths of evil. Seriously, who wants that story? The trend in our hearts and our minds, even in our churches, will be to soften this, to tame it, to make us feel better about ourselves and ultimately to replace it, to replace the cross itself. But may I suggest to you this morning, there is much freedom to be found for our souls to admit that which is true. We need Christ. We are lost without him. We need to be awakened. We need help. We need real life that we cannot produce in and of ourselves. Because when we admit and remember this truth, then the glory of point 2, will sink into our hearts. All right, fortunately, the sermon does not end with part one. Look now at verses four through 10 and let your hope in Christ come alive this morning. We've seen the bad news. And now let's remember our glorious hope. Verses four through 10. And I suggest these verses are such the heartbeat of our beliefs from the Reformed perspective and the goodness of the gospel. Here is the question. What does God do? What might God do? What can God do with these spiritually dead people? What will he do with them? Will he ignore them? Will he punish them? Will he forget them? What will he do with these people he has created that have turned their backs on him and are now dead? Let's see quickly why and what God has done with the people of Christ. And know this morning that we are not forgotten people. Notice God's heart towards sinners. How does he look at people like us in our sin? Do you see it? Paul says he's rich in mercy. Not just merciful, but he's rich in mercy. It's an abundance of his love for us. That is, he does not give us what we deserve in our rebellion against him. He does not execute the penalty of our guilty sentence. He does not treat us as he should. He should execute justice because we are, in fact, guilty. But he does not do that. Rather, in his love for these that he has made in his image, his desire was to give life to us to give communion to us, to give hope, to give freedom, to give liberty, to give joy that we would never have apart from him. Question, what did God see in us? What would motivate him to do such a thing? What was his motivation? Was our future potential? Did he see something special in us that we would turn into? Was it our intelligence? Was it our ability to broker peace into a hostile world? Was it the gifts of the poor that someday we would give? I hope you see this morning afresh that it was none of those things. Because we were dead, we offered nothing. It was only his desire to grant his affection to people who did not deserve it. Though mankind had turned their back on him, he did not do so with us. And Paul knew as he wrote these words, as he himself was a religious murderer, what he deserved. So God's motivation to act was purely his love. Friends, this is what we call grace. In the early 20th century, there was a British conference to discuss religion. You can imagine the scene, the tweed sport coats, the academia the intellectual ones of the day. Philip Yancey records this in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, that scholars came from around the world to debate this question. What, if anything, at all, was unique about the Christian faith? Was there anything that Christianity brought to the table that did not exist in all other religions? The debate was... About had Christianity done anything that didn't previously exist? And scholars struggled to figure it out. From the incarnation to the promise of eternal life, other religions had certain claims. The debate continued on and on until C.S. Lewis entered the conversation and abruptly asked, What's this rumpus all about? What's unique about Christianity? That's easy it's grace. It's grace. After more discussion, the others began to agree. Even the non-believers recognized that only Christianity understood the notion that God loves us simply because God loves us. It's not because what we've done or what we might do. He loves us because he loves us. There are no conditions, thus there are no restrictions. His love is free. At RUF, Reformed University Fellowship Campus Meetings, at their large group meetings here at UK. It's one of the campus ministries over at UK. Their meetings begin with the same refrain each week. And if any of y'all are here, I hope I get this right. But it's something like this. Nick will stand up and he will say to start the meeting, no one is so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. And no one is so good that they are not in need of his grace. I think that's the perfect description for this day of celebration. It's God's grace. We all are in need. God's motive was his love. But do notice also, what specifically does God do with these dead people? Look at verse 5. It's important that we see how he acts toward us while we were dead. Scripture says very clearly, he made us alive. He made us alive. I hope that picture reminds you of the creation of the world itself, that which he has made. In Genesis 1, how did each day come into being? How did he make each day? How did he do it? He spoke and life came into being. With his voice, life was produced. With his words, resurrection life happened. And with his power is found In his words. You see God speaks to us from his words. And by his spirit power exists. We can believe because God speaks to us. Is it that simple? Well it's a miracle. But yes it's that simple. God can't speak to you even today. And turn your heart to believe. Let's close with this. With just one part of our hope. It's an amazing thing. This miracle of God's grace has just begun. But notice the end of verse 6. Now that we have life, now that we're saved, punishment for sin is removed, a future secured forever, we are now, quote, in Christ. In Christ is the theme of our lives In our baptisms, we are sealed in such a way that we have union with Jesus forever. Our lives are so connected to him that our lives are connected for eternity with Christ. As we confessed our faith earlier about justification, we now have Christ's love, his righteousness, imputed upon us. When you believe in Christ, it's not just that your sins are removed but now the very righteousness of Christ is on us in us and with us for all of eternity. Can you accept on this Reformation Sunday how God looks at you? In a few minutes the children from gospel story time will re-enter the sanctuary. It'll be a little loud, it'll be a little crazy. Be a little unorganized. They'll be running around a little bit lost, not in a spiritual sense, but literally they don't know where they're going. They might be confused, but yet, notice the look in their parents' faces when the parents find their children, and you will see joy that is unexpressible when the parents see their children. There's an overjoy in their eyes that cannot be compared. You need to understand, this is the dynamic of your heavenly father as he sees you in Christ. Wherever you are coming from this morning, God, your heavenly father, delights when he sees you. This is our hope. Yes, our sin is gone, but it did not just disappear. It was put upon the Lord It was all placed on him, and his father gave him our punishment, and thus, only Jesus is qualified to give us life. And church, he did. May we never forget that even if we do, he will not forget us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and we'll transition to the Lord's Prayer, and then we will come again this week and feast with our Savior. Lord, we worship you this morning that you indeed are a a God who is rich in mercy. As we consider the reality of our sin, Lord, help us to embrace that which is true. And, oh, Father, I pray that we run to you in celebration of your love for us. Oh, God, help us to believe. And now we pray as you instructed us to pray.